Bridges to Bailey, back to Bridges, once more to Bailey, now it's Bridges, here's Bailey, oh my, Bridges, Bailey, Bailey, Bridges, and they scored! Last play of the game, 98 yards to go, and these boys ain't got no more hope than a pig in a parlor. Pitch goes to the right, defense closing in, and he's floating. He's in the air, a human being is taking flight, he's flying to the 50, the end zone, touchdown! The piggies have done it, I turned, I turned, I turned, the piggies win! Oh, and Roger Federer is clearly mouthing the F word at the crowd, and they are letting him hear it. What a disgraceful display from the Swiss. Oh, what's this? He's throwing it back. This could change the sport. A terrible day for fishing. A great day for the fish. This is Apocalypse Sports Radio. And now your host, Shane Ryan. Apocalypse Sports Radio, episode number 19. This is Shane. Good morning, everybody. If indeed it is morning where you are. If not, substitute whatever appropriate time of day you'd like to. I don't care. All right, today we've got a very special one for you uh, because for the first time in podcast history, we have an actual athlete on the show. Now, people may know I've got some pretty major accomplishments under my belt in USTA amateur tennis, 3-5 level and 3-0 level, Uh, but that does not compare, in my opinion. Maybe you'll say I'm being humble, but I don't think it compares to our guest today, Christina Kim. Uh, Christina is an LPGA golfer, five victories to her credit as a professional, and uh, yeah, just an extremely talented person. And she and I started interacting, I think about a year ago on Twitter. I don't remember why or how, but uh, you know, it quickly became clear she is a person of great taste because she complimented my writing at times. But no, she's, uh, she's really smart. She's very, very funny. Um, she's a very good writer. And then a week ago, I was listening to PGA Tour Live, and she was the guest commentator, and it turns out she's quite good at that, too. So a real five-tool human being, uh, as they say. And uh, yeah, so I asked her to be on, and she agreed, which was awesome. And we talked about just about everything from you know, her early days, her childhood, how she got into golf, her career, and all the extracurricular stuff she does. Uh, we talked a little bit about mental health and things like that that, uh, that she's dealt with. And yeah, I think it was a really fun chat. The only little caveat uh, for you to know going in is that for the first 20 minutes or so, the audio is just a little bit shaky uh, on her end. And uh, then, you know, she had the brilliant idea of turning the video off on the Zoom chat that we were doing and things immediately improved. So around like the 25 minute mark or so, it, it gets much smoother, but you just have to bear with it a little bit in the beginning. It's not terrible. It's just not, you know, pristine, I guess. All right. So uh, what else? Oh, yeah. The Apocalypse Sports Network. You probably know the deal by now. If not, it's something I do where I write five blog posts each week. I do two podcasts. You can get it for $3 a month, all of it, uh, at patreon.com slash apocalypseports. And a lot of the stuff is free just to begin with. So if you don't want to subscribe, enjoy all the free stuff. All right. Without further ado, let's get on to it. Uh, This is Christina Kim. Segment break. Christina, welcome. How are you, my friend? I'm great, Shane. Thanks. How are you doing? I'm really good uh, because this is the 19th episode of this podcast. And to this point, we've only had sports journalists on here. So you are the first person of actual talent that we've ever had. So thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much for for breaking the athlete barrier and and joining this podcast. I feel so honored. Wow. Thank you. (laughs) 
So uh, we're looking at you now. This is obviously just an audio podcast, but you've got a nice golf backdrop. And uh, I know you're in Florida and probably gearing up for the start of LPGA. So how are you hanging in? I know Florida is exploding with COVID right now. Um, are you managing to keep cool and, uh, and get your practice in? Um, yes to the former. No, excuse me. Uh, no to the former. Yes to the latter. It is <laughs> every day. I, I like check and I'm just like, oh, okay. Yeah. Two o'clock. It's a real feel of one Oh nine. That's awesome. Oh, okay. Humidity is only at like 92%. Cool. 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 And then I'm like, <laughs> ah, shit. Dew points at like 78 or 80 degrees. I'm like, oh my God, this is just going to be disgusting. And every single day, the further into summer I get, I think, well, maybe we'll catch a cold front. And I've been wrong every single day. Yeah. So it sounds like you're a real weatherhead, though. I mean, I, I was impressed before you brought up dew point and then you got to dew point and I was like, wow, she's like a professional. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I will say I'd be very curious to know the amount of things that Bryson does right when he's at his ball, because those are the, a lot of the things that I calculate prior to getting to my ball. That way I'm ready when I actually am meant to hit my ball. No shade. So that's interesting. So when you're playing an actual tournament, you are, you are really considering humidity and things like that, even like to such a minute degree that it's before every shot. I, well, I mean, for the most part, as soon as my club face makes contact with the ball, I, I'm already calculating what I'm going to have into the green and what kind of shot shape I'm going to hit. Because before I even tee up my ball, look at the whole location, figure out where from the fairway I should be coming in from. And I kind of play the whole backwards before I even get my ball onto a tee. And I'm also one of the quickest players on tour without a doubt. So I do all of this stuff prior to ever making contact with the ball prior. To, I, I know, you know, it's going to be one of two at most three irons mm -hmm. when as soon as I make contact with my ball, depending on, on how I hit it. And you just, you, as you're walking, you can figure out, okay, like I can feel there's a change and you know, the humidity has dropped or you can see, okay, because we're at a little bit more elevation or it's more exposed or, you know, because of this or that, you can feel there's a wind change, all these little, little changes to your environment. You should, in my opinion, be acutely aware of your, your environment as you're living life. And, right. you know, I'm also very externally stimulated. I'm clearly an extrovert as it is in every sense of the word. <laughs> so I'm, I'm constantly aware of what's taking place. Um, and those are things that I run through in the back of my head all the time as it is anyway. I'm just like, it's just who I am. And so yeah. I think for me, if I were to wait, get to my ball and then start calculating that kind of stuff, I would, I would lose my mind because I would think that it would just be like complete overload. Whereas if you're like constantly checking on things with every few steps, every now and again, you can just sit there and just be like, okay, yeah, it's still at 71 degrees humidity and it's still sticky and, or 71 degrees dew point, excuse me, you know, and then, um, you know, if we're getting closer to the water, let's say, or if there's a lake or something, it might, you know, have a slight alteration to the, the moisture levels in the air and things like that. Or if the, the, it's a big, expanse of water and your the flag is over on the side that the water is like chances are the air is going to be a little heavier over there like it's not contrary to what people say it really isn't rocket science 
<laughs> now, it's funny because a lot of that may sound overbearing to some people who don't either play golf or who don't play golf on your level, but I completely relate to it because I think for a certain personality that you and I might share, I don't want to be presumptuous, but having all of that input going on at once is actually more calming in some way to be able to sort of engage with all these different elements. Uh, is that it, like, even though it sounds like a lot, it kind of puts you at peace because it gives you like a task to do. For sure. Like one, it will help you to be distracted away from, you know, the potential sheer terror that is playing <laughs> golf. Um, and at the same time, like it's for me, the way I see it is as I'm moving along during my round, it provides me the opportunity to feel as in control of my situation as possible by being able to react to the things that I'm externally feeling. Yeah, this is why I play online poker at night. I don't have something like golf, and it's not to, dis to disguise from the terror of a golf tournament, but from the sheer terror of life. So I, I put cards in front of my face, and three hours later, I'm tired and get to go to bed. It's Yeah, it's, it sounds like a similar system. Lower stakes for me, but... Uh, yeah, so that's great. And, um, you know, I was going to, like, hearing this, at one point in the podcast, I was like, I am going to confront Christina with the first line from her Wikipedia bio, just because I kind of thought that was a funny thing to do. And for you, after it goes to the basics of what you do and where you were born, it says, she is known for her animated style of play, flamboyant dress, and outgoing personality. Uh, and while all that stuff is true, hearing what you just said, it's like, oh, no, there's also a hugely analytical almost mathematical or obsessive, detailed, obsessive part of you? Well, I just think that it's, for me, I have spent so much of my life previously focusing so much on the past or looking so far ahead into the future. Like I always say that the future's never written. You are the pen and the paper here in the moment. So mm -hmm. right now I'm just trying to be the pen and the paper. And the world is so amazing. Um, to every definition of the word that, you know, if you're not experiencing what you're going through right now, then, you know, what's, what's the freaking point? Um, that being said, I still tell fart jokes. <laughs> <laughs> well, and now that you've said you like to focus on the present, I would like to ask you about the past, <laughs> if I may. Um, no, of course. No, but going back. So, you know, my perception having, you know, having spoken with a lot of professional golfers is that um, to be as to be able to play at that high level, you can't just be talented and you can't just be a hard worker. You also have to start at a super, super young age. Uh, I know you're from California area. How old were you when you started golf? Was it like a, a thing that you did from the time you were a really young kid? Uh, I think it kind of depends on what you mean by the definition of very young. I was just shy of 12 when oh, I started playing golf. Yeah. So I was already sort of like on the way towards that horrible transition where things start growing and smells start happening and <laughs> hair starts sprouting out and all that. So I was going through all of that trauma um, at the same time, time that I was getting immersed in golf myself. So I think, um, you know, if I had started when I was like three or four years old, I wouldn't have even been able to be aware of where my freaking fingers were, let alone um, be able to handle like an, an inanimate object that I have to manipulate so I, you know, there's, there's no, there's no right or wrong time for anyone to start playing golf. And if you have that, um, you know, and it doesn't even go in terms of like cockiness or arrogance or anything, but you have that calm, firm belief that you're going to make it, 
like to hell with what anyone else says. You know, I, I think I was fortunate to start when I did because I had a better sense of myself and I did not feel like I needed people's praises, which is great because right, I didn't necessarily right. receive a, a ton of them growing up anyway, <laughs> yeah. especially when I turned pro right out of high school. Everyone thought that. They were, everyone was just like, are you high? Like, you, you think you're going to make it out on tour? And I was like, you don't have to believe in me because you're not the one having to hit the golf ball. So, right. bye. So, yeah, no, when I said very young, I did mean, I, I'm surprised to hear that you didn't start till you were 12. Did you ever feel when you started that you were like when you got serious about it, that you were behind a little bit, or it sounds like you were pretty confident from the get-go. Well, so my dad actually, um, my brother and sister and I started playing golf at the same time. And we took a very unorthodox route because usually it's like you take a kid when they're really little, you have them hit a few putts, you see the ball go in the hole and everyone goes, yay. (laughs) Whereas my dad, he would, drag out like remember those like two by mats that had like a ball hanging off a hook yeah um, I've seen, I've seen he those. took yeah. us into the backyard yeah he would take us into the backyard and say these are the fundamentals this is the grip this is the stance this is the tempo now i want you to try and hit that ball hanging off of a hook 500 times a day non-stop to each of the three of us really okay and yeah and so we did that for about three months before we were ever brought to a driving range and he was like the ball's no longer on a hook. It's on the ground and you have to send it out as far as you can. So we were pretty fortunate because we learned a lot about the fundamentals of the swing and things like tempo and grip before we ever found out there was a point to all of this. And so we actually progressed pretty quickly and we were, um, you know, cause I used to, I used to mash the ball when I was a kid. Like I was, I was fearless and I was obviously young. So I had no, you know, I've always, I've always been hyper flexible and I had no, you know, mortgage <laughs> to right, be fair. Sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so when I was a kid, I would just wail at the ball and, um, then eventually built up my short game after that. So I feel like in the period of time, like it took me six years to turn pro. Right. And, and I, it took me, um, five years to make it to my first U.S. Women's Open. So I feel like I, you know, was able to deal with my growing body at the same time that I was going through these swing, uh, you know, being introduced to the swings. Whereas, you know, when you're a kid, you have to constantly change clubs as when you're going from like two feet tall to, I don't know how tall little people get before they're my age when I was 12, when I started, you know, you have to get new sets. You'd have to get, you know, super light clubs and then have to move on. And then, you know, going from graphite to steel, if you so choose to do that, like there's so many like possible things that could go on. And then when you're really young and potentially weak, even if you're strong for your age, there's all these compensatory moves that it's just human nature. So I was right. just like, I'm going to hit both because <laughs> I'm almost fully grown anyway. It's funny. It reminds me of a story about Rafa Nadal when he started playing and his uncle Tony was his coach and he would basically just have him hit the ball as hard as he could. And he didn't care if the ball went like, tw- you know, 20 feet long or whatever. It was just like, well, we'll worry about getting it in later. Yeah. But I want you to start from a place of power. Uh, power's got to be the first yeah. thing. And then we'll refine everything later, which, again, as you said, is kind of counterintuitive. It's not what you hear when you're like, oh, this is how you should instruct a kid to do this. But there must be some kind of like paradoxical way that it works, obviously in your case. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I found out, you know, years and years later, that's kind of the route that some 
um, uh, golf organizations were taking on, they would get kids that were really, you know, very strong, good at soccer, good at um, American football, good at you know baseball and things like that, where they already had like their fast twitch muscles sort of established already. And then they said, let's just try and get you to hit the ball as far as you want. And then we'll slowly get you to go from, you know, Wi-Fi golf, which is just, you know, all over the place and just sort of get you to narrow your focus a little bit. And if you look at the PGA tour, like obviously when it comes to their irons, they have to have that, um, you know, pinpoint accuracy though with their drives, like I sit there and I'm just like, I remember when I played the Vic open these last two years in Australia, it was a co-ed event of men and women. And I played practice rounds. Like I had, I had a practice round with Aaron Pike. I played, um, you know, I, I had uh, James Morrison. Out and watching us. It was like, you guys hit it. And they're like, you hit it so straight. And we were just in awe of each other because golf is almost played in, <laughs> in opposite ways. You know, they go driver wedge more often than we do. Like they, they have almost no par fives. We have like legitimate par fives. We rarely, you know, hit the hit the greens in two. And a lot of the times our par fives are going to, uh, if we were to have a course at, the, at a tournament at the sports, a lot of times our par fives are going to be off the same tees right. where, you know, they're just going, I'm just going to hit, you know, seven iron into the green. And I'm like, I'm like cool story, bro. I'm going to whale on my three wood. And then I'm going to have like, a, you know, half pitch, you know, maybe run it up near the front of the green or something like that. And, you know, just, just, you go ahead and enjoy having your seven iron into the green. That's funny. That's funny. Now going back quickly, when you told me the story about your dad, I would think that most 12 year olds, if their parents were like, okay, for the next three months, you're going to hit this thing 500 times a day. Uh, it would be a tough sell, but it sounds, it sounds like you were into it, even though you weren't allowed to actually, like you said, go on the course and see a ball go in the hole. You, you did stick with that regimen. How did you not just refuse <laughs> and, and be just like a classic like preteen and be like, no way, there's no way I'm doing that for three months? Well, I was uh, to one end very fortunate because I was raised in a, in an, I was born and raised here in America in a Korean household. And usually when your dad says jump, it's like how far, how high, um, how how many times, you know, we, we, we don't really say no very much. I learned very, very quickly on that. No was actually a word I could learn how to use and have been making up for it ever since. Um, that being said, my brother and sister and I, we all had to do it. So we had to get 1500 swings between the three of us. And so it became a little bit of a competition where we would sit there and like watch with an eagle eye on the other sibling and be like, Nope, that was 498. I was counting. You got two more. <laughs> so we had the benefit of that element as well. And do you know what made your dad want to do that at that point? Yeah, he, you know, he was always very athletic. And when he moved, uh, when he emigrated to the U S in, in the early, early eighties, he had, you know, his friends that had also moved to, to California and they would play tennis every weekend. They would play soccer every weekend. Um, they were extremely athletic. He would go abalone diving all the time. Like he oh, wow. was a legitimate athlete. He, mm -hmm. he played tennis at, um, a pretty high level as an amateur when he was in Korea before moving over. So he was always active and the older he and his friends got the, he was still phenomenal and they weren't necessarily as good as they used to be. Just like a lot of us, you know, as we get older, we realize, you know, things can be harder. And so a lot of them start dropping off and playing golf more often. And he actually was under the impression that golf was for old people. 
Okay. And so his best friend took him to the golf course one day and said, Hey, you're the best athlete I know. If you can hit this ball and hit it past me and then hit it on the green and make your putt, um, you know, if we go out on the golf course, I'll never bother you again about golf. And my dad was very arrogant. Um, and he studied like kinesiology and body mechanics in, in Korea. And so he was just like, this is a piece of cake. It's just, it's just standing there. Yeah. All I have to do is hit it. And he took one swing and was just, he fell in love immediately. Really? Because everything else, you know, I mean, tennis and soccer and really ev- pretty much every sport in the entire sports world is reactionary. Yeah. Whereas golf starts in a static position. And, you know, that's where some of the artistry, if you will, comes from golf because you have to create the shot every single time. Um, you're, you know, reacting based off of where your tee shot ends up to hit your next shot. You still have to start from a stationary place and you have to create and craft what you're going to do. So he fell in love immediately and he got us involved. I think maybe, I want to say, it was a three years after he was and on his 99th day from touching a golf club he had um his first hole in one and he shot 99 so he he was just like like, they're gonna be good too because i am pretty good i was able to pick up on it pretty well so my kids are gonna my kids are gonna be good and then he was like you know, this is still in the nineties. So he was like, you know, my sister, who's the eldest, she was 15 and a half at the time. He was like, we can get her a college scholarship. Then my brother was a year younger than her. And then I was, you know, about three years younger than my brother. And he was like, Tina's got time. It's okay. We'll, we'll, we'll get her figured out, you know, after we send them off. And, um, so it was just a, uh, it was, it was a pretty crazy whirlwind. So yeah, it sounds like your dad's the kind of guy when he gets into something really gets into something and the, and the whole family's kind of along for the ride. Yeah, that's a fair assessment. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, so, so you start at 12 and six years later, right, you're, you're turning pro. So what, obviously you were very successful in the interval, but that's still a big decision, right? I mean, you, you there's college, there's, there's going pro. What made you decide to go pro? Because it sounds like people around you were like, you know, at least some people were skeptical. Oh, no, everyone was skeptical. And that's okay. <laughs> um, I... You know, I, when I was 16, I played in my first professional event as an amateur. It is what's now the Symmetra Tour, which is like the ladies' version of the Corn Ferry Tour. And I played on an invitation, um, and I ended up losing in a playoff to eventual um, uh, number one in the, uh, on, the, on the money list that year, Beth Bauer, mm-hmm. who was, you know, previously she had gone to Duke. She was number one amateur in the world, yada, yada. And I was just like, you know, I was just playing junior tournaments for the most part up until then. I played in like one or two, uh, like US AMs and other like national amateur championships. Um, I was primarily playing junior tournaments at that point though. And I was just like, this is cool. Like this is better competition. And I, I like this, like this is, really really cool then my dad was like well you know if you had um if you if you wanted to you know one of these days if you become better you could turn professional and 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 make money doing that and I was like I don't know what any of that means all I know is I want to play golf for the rest of my life and then that summer I went and played in the U.S. Women's Open and played well. I was the youngest player to make the cut, uh, was like third low am, um, left a lot of, I mean, I remember I hit, I hit, we were at pine needles. I think it was number, was it number one or number 10? It was my 10th hole. 
I think it was number one because it was um, on the Saturday. I drove the green in two, had two putts and a par because I putted it into the bunker. <laughs> and, you know, it was just like, I didn't know what I was doing. I had no idea what I was doing. Um, and so my dad, like after the week, he was like, you should be really proud of yourself. I'm like, I'm like dad, I finished like 50th. And he was like, yeah, out of the better world. And we would have walked off with like 12 grand. And I was like, how? He's like, were you not listening to me like six months ago? If you play professional golf, you yeah. can make money. And I was like, no shit. And so I was, um, you know, I was, I was thinking just because that's what everyone always says is you play junior tournaments you go to college and then after college, whatever. And so um, both my parents were educators back in Korea before they moved to the States. And so education was always very important to us. Um, I had thought though, you know, when you go to college, it's to obviously, you know, uh, learn, um, improve, uh, um, you know, academia, you're supposed to learn how to do a keg stand and play beer pong. And you're supposed to learn what it is that you want to do with your life as you grow up. And I knew what I wanted to do. So I said, you know, I asked my parents, I said, I, I think I want to turn pro. Um, I, I can always go back back to school is the way that I thought about it. And lo and behold, you go, you know, 20 years in the future. Now it's cool to be, you know, quote unquote old going back to school. So I'm like, you know, (laughs) total trendsetter before it was in the thing. And um, so, you know, we thought about it and we talked about it. And then my parents, they gave me their full support and we went off, played half a season as an amateur on uh, what is now the Symmetra tour went to uh, Q school that year for the Symmetra tour because I was still 17 and was medalist at Q school. And then just off, I went to the, uh, to the races. Yeah. Yeah. And, and now you mentioned they were educators in Korea. Were they also teachers in the States? Is that what their, what your, your parents did? No, they were, we lived in the Silicon Valley. So very, oh, okay. you know, my, my dad was a, an instructor on how to build semiconductors and my mother okay. worked in what, back in the day was called networking, which has nothing to do with networking these days. Um, so she, yeah, it was, this was like, you know, the early, early ages of, of, you know, computers and the internet and things like that. And now you mentioned also that they, um, they had your older siblings play or your older sister, at least. What is that like? There's always an interesting (sighs) dynamic there when you're the one who's kind of going off to the races. How did they handle that? Um, was it, was it nice to kind of have, like, being the youngest in some way? Did it kind of free you up a little? Yeah, for sure. I mean, because if you think about it, like, the standard, you know, family dynamic of the oldest is the most independent. The middle child is uh, sort of in this weird, strange limbo of trying to find themselves while still being more dependent on the older sibling and the parents while still trying to be a good influence on the younger child and then the younger child's like i'm just getting away with freaking murder you know and i'm the baby so yeah. i get all the attention so when we started playing just because of the cha- a- the difference in age my sister all of a sudden had 
uh, my brother and sister, I should say, both had all of the attention and I was left out in the cold because my dad, again, was like, we'll take care of her later. Like mm-hmm. she can, she can like watch and observe and things like that. I just want to focus more on, um, you know, these two older siblings. So my sister, like the, the role reversal is basically switched and I was incensed. I was like, why am I getting <laughs> no attention? I don't understand what on earth is going on. And so I think to an extent that made me drive even further to want to play even better just so I could be like, I'm still here. I'm still important. Right, right. And, um, you know, it, it had a little bit of a, a reverse effect on my sister and my brother because they, neither of them, uh, they both, they're both still pretty good golfers. They just, neither of them have the sort of, um, uh, obsessive passion that I do. And part of the, I am mother for me my first three and a half years on tour a uh, year and a half on this metro tour so we we worked five years with him on the bag and we had some gnarly blow-ups and you know now that i think about it it's because i am my dad so when you're basically shouting into a mirror you can't <laughs> really see either side making their point come across correctly now, what, what were these blows? What what usually prompted them? What was it that kind of forced you guys to get on each other's nerves? Oh, I would three putt or he would insist I needed to hit an eight when I knew I needed to hit a nine, like stupid stuff. Like, you know, just, just, <laughs> yeah. just standard things. And, yeah. and that being said, now that I had, after I had worked with him, once I started working with um, like professional, you know, he, be- and he became an incredible professional caddy in the end. He did. He was, he was there for my first victory. Um, you know, we, or I should say we had our first victory together, both as professionals, as well as on LPGA, we both were able to represent the United States in the Solheim cup and right. win, win beyond winning teams for the Solheim cup. Like there was all this amazing stuff that took place. Um, and since working with him, I have now gotten to the point where one, I'm very intense. And then two, if I can all go back to my caddy and like hand him the club, I'd be like, I'm sorry, I missed the town. <laughs> That's really funny. And so, so when you started, you know, when I think of the PGA tour, I think of it as a very isolated, um, kind of experience where everybody's their own Island. I have heard, I've never covered the European tour. I've heard that is more collegial probably because there's less money. I don't know, but where does the LPGA fit on that? And I know you didn't go there immediately, but being a young person on these women's tours, um, is it more of a community or are you really kind of in a silo? So I think that there's a bit of a difference between the men and the women, uh, for a number of reasons. Obviously the men are playing for so much more money than we are. And so it's going to be more businesslike. Um, and then you're going to come across the women who, quite frankly, we're, we're more emotional in general, just as in terms of society, like we, we are more community based, we um, interact with one another a lot, we interact with our fans, we interact with our sponsors. Um, and so I would say that, you know, we're all really, really friendly. And, you know, we, we compare now compared to when I first got my tour card, it is definitely a bit more business-like because we are playing for more money. And I think that's one of the main reasons why you're going to have people um, be a bit more, you know, to themselves because Mm -hmm. they're so focused on the business side of things. That being said, like, you know, we all go out and have a blast for the most part. And so, and so you guys will hang out. So it's not this kind of thing where it's like you, your entourage and you, go to the course and you go to your hotel room and go out to eat and don't really interact with other players. It's not, it sounds like that's not the case at all. 
for the most part, yes. One, what is an entourage? <laughs> because <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. you know, we'll we'll bring our teachers out, you know, at most four times a year. Um, you know, we we have our own like fitness programs that we have our trainers that we do a lot of like online stuff with, like my trainer Ryan Blackburn of uh, Orlando Golf Performance. He and I've been together for about six months, and when I'm um, not in town in Orlando, he sends me um, like workouts through an online app. Um, you know, I don't have a nutritionist. I don't have a sports psychologist because I've used a couple before and it's always like, I have one, two, three, four going on. What do you think I should do? And they'll be like, well, what do you think you should do? And I said, well, in theory, (laughs) if I did one, if I did a and B, that'll take care of one and three C should actually work between two, four and subsequently three, so if I do one, two, and if I do A, B, and C, one, two, and three, and four should be taking care of themselves. And they're like, you know what? I love that. I, I You said that with a lot of conviction. I think you should go with that. And I'm like, then why am I giving you money? Um, <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I, you know, for me, it's myself and my caddy. Um, and at the same time, um, I've also just sort of, I've, I've changed over the years more, uh, more or less because I do Airbnbs a ton. Um, I almost never stay in a hotel because, you know, I mean, I spent, you know, the better part of 15 years in a hotel room every single week. And I would sit there and I would just be like, you know, there was one year where I came home and I put my stuff down, walked into my bedroom and I didn't know where I was because I was like, this doesn't look like a courtyard. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I don't like the decor of this. So I do Airbnbs and I always joke that I've actually been preemptively doomsday prepping for COVID because I've probably gone out to dinner with um, fellow tour players maybe five times in the last two and a half years. And that's because <laughs> when I finish practicing and I finish playing and I finish my cool down, all I want to do is take my pants off. Yeah, and yeah, right. <laughs> so it requires a very special person. And on top of that, a very special occasion for me to be willing to put pants back on for anybody so I, um, I, you know, and I spend so much time at the golf course. Like I'm, I'm still as passionate for the game as I was when I was a child and I'll be there for hours on end, you know I mean? And I'll, I'll sit there and I'll, I mean, I'll practice a, a fair bit and I spend a lot of time talking and I spend a lot of time, you know, mentoring some of the rookies mm-hmm. and, you know, cultivating, you know, these, these new young professionals trying to make them feel comfortable and things like that. So, you know, I don't necessarily always have a ton of time. Plus I sleep a lot. Um, because you know, it's so cute how like the PJ tour, because of everything going on with COVID and Nick Watney, how they've gotten the whoop band for all of their tour players. And then in the last six to eight months, you know, you saw JT was wearing it. You saw that Rory was using it. And I'm, yeah. And I'm like, bitch, I got it the day it became available (laughs) to the public in April of 2017. Like, like I said, I'm a freaking trendsetter. That being said, knitting groups are going to be the next big thing for girls in college. Knitting groups. Why is that? Because you're going to get these girls that were like the Visco girls that are like, you know, they drink out of their hydro flask and they have their scrunchies and their oversized shirts. And then they're going to want to try and find a way to, um, you know, just like we all do, you know, when we're younger, trying to find a way to identify ourselves. And, and, you know, because these Visco girls are, you know, they, they first start off just saying all of these uh, things where they're environmentally conscientious and then they actually learn about it. And then they'll be like, you know what? I can make my own clothes. And I can do whatever I want when it comes to making my own clothes. And so knitting is going to be a huge thing. 
even like, in the next three years. All right. Uh, yeah. And luckily the audio is really good. So when you said that, that's on the record. So we'll check back. I'm going to make a calendar notice. I'm just going to say knitting Christina and I'll have no idea what it means in three years. But, <laughs> but, but maybe I'll remember. No, that's good. I like that. And uh, are you are you into knitting at all? Have you gotten into it? Or is that just sort of like a, a bird's eye view thing of this is where society is going? Well, I was into um, like hand knitting scarves, not using the actual knitting needles like okay. four or five years ago. Um, and then it became popular and I was like, "Ugh, I know how to do it. I'm, I'm good. I'm good. And, you know, it's one of those things, too, that sounds so old fashioned and it's so removed that I think it would be trendy, too, in a way. Like it would be a cool thing for people to want to say like, oh, yeah, I'm going to my knitting circle. And yeah, I think I can absolutely see that being like the next yoga or, or <laughs> I don't even know, like the next whoop or whatever. Um, oh, I there's to, no question. I have to ask you about the whoop, though, because I read I read more and more about this and I hear differing stories. You've had it for three years now, and I'm so cynical about this stuff. In the back of my mind, I suspect that it's like pseudoscience, like it's going to be like the copper bracelet or a breathe right nose strip or whatever. Tell me, am I, am I wrong? I know nothing about it. It's just my natural like cynicism, I guess. Well, so I tinkered with uh, various activity trackers over the years, um, you know, ever since what was it? it was called the body bug, like, like seven years ago or eight years ago, I first got into that. Um, so the thing with the whoop um, that I can say, I'm not going to say you're wrong about it because you believe what you want to believe. I can only tell you <laughs> through my own personal experiences that um, after about a month, which is one thing I love about this is that it says, do not necessarily rely on the information for about a month because it needs to learn your personalized body metrics. Okay. And so it needs to learn everything is based off of heart rate. So it's got three main components, which is recovery, strain and sleep. And so the, and the three are, are inextricably tied together based on how much you've slept uh, and it all rates everything off your heart rate. So it talks about, you know, you recover based off of your heart rate variability, which is, I think that the, the, the difference between heartbeats, like that's when your, your body's actually recovering. Okay. Um, so while you're sleeping, it will measure based again off of your heart rate, the four stages of the REM cycle, which is when you're awake, when you're in light sleep, when you're in REM sleep and when you're in your slow wave sleep um, state. And so it'll tell you how much of each segment of the cycle you were in throughout the period of time when you were, you know, quote unquote asleep, because I used to sit there and say, Oh, I've got a 7am tea time. I want to be up by five. So I need to be in bed by nine because I want to try and get eight hours of sleep. Right, and then right. after having used the whoop, it tells me it's like, actually you're, you're awake technically because you know, your REM cycle for most people lasts for about 90 minutes before you wake up again. Mm -hmm. And even though you wake up, that doesn't mean that you're actually conscious, your eyes open this, that, um, it, it was telling me that I was getting, you know, in an eight hour sleep period, I was getting about seven hours and 32 minutes of sleep. Okay, and so I was like, Oh crap. So in order to, and you can choose if you want to just get by, if you want to perform or if you want to peak. And so it'll tell you based on how much sleep you've gotten. Um, and you can use this on like your off days, like, you know, like practice days and travel days and things like that. It's kind of hard when you're in a tournament to be like, Oh, okay, well I got 36% recovery. So it's telling me to try and keep my strain under 12 and I'm going to be playing a golf course that has, you know, 400 feet of elevation. Right, so chances right. are I'm going to have a high strain. And so, um, the strain is based off of like cardiovascular load as well as, um, how much just blood you're pumping and how, how much your heart is beating or, you know, oftentimes when it's a Friday afternoon and you're sitting near the cut line racing, 
And so it'll tell you um, how much strain or stress you put on your heart. And so based on the amount of strain you put on your heart, it'll, so basically how much strain you put on your heart will recommend how much sleep you get, how much sleep you get will determine how well recovered you are and how well recovered you are will then tell you what you should, what you could do in terms of how much strain you can put on your body. um, You know, when you wake up in the morning. And so for me, I noticed that I've gained a really, really good um, idea of like these days I can wake up. I don't even have to look at my whoop. I, I do play games every day. Cause I am still a child, um, <laughs> where I will guess what my recovery is and I'm never off by more than 5% wow. because I've been using this for so long. So I've become so highly in tuned with my own body. And because, you know, when you go out there and you play a, a round of golf, you just, you know, especially it's like the average person will sit there and think, oh, you know, you're only doing this or, you know, you're just swinging a club and people don't necessarily understand the kind of torque and the kind of strain you're putting on your body, especially mm-hmm. when you're launching the ball as far away as you can with accuracy. So I was able to learn like what my heart rate was doing during rounds of golf, during different rounds of golf. Like my heart rate is always a little bit different on a Thursday compared to late on a Friday compared to um, late on a Sunday. So, Mm. you know, it's, it's taught me a lot about how important it is to one, be present two really learn how to breathe, especially through my belly. And three, I need to sleep more. And that's also one reason why I don't go out as much because it's like, you remember that was like, it was maybe like five years ago or so when CrossFit was really big yeah, and yeah, people yeah. like, Hey, do you want to go out and grab drinks tonight? We're going to go grab drinks around eight o'clock. And then it'd be, the person would be like, no, I have CrossFit at 5am. Okay. So people yeah. are like, they'll be like, Hey, Christina, do you want to go grab some dinner or grab some drinks? We're probably going to meet up around seven. And I'm like, no, I can't. My whoop says I need nine hours of sleep. Sorry. <laughs> My REM cycles need to catch up to it. <laughs> yeah. 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 No. Right. yeah that's no cool. Question. No, that's good. I got to say, that's the most thorough description I've ever heard of it. And that's, that's on me. I just haven't really looked it up. Um, but that, yeah, that does make me want to get one. You, you've changed. It's, it's a 180 for me. You've completely changed how I look at it. Um, yeah, that is fascinating. Cause I, I do sometimes feel, I'm like, ah, I should feel better. Cause I worked out yesterday and then I wonder if it's too hard. Yeah. That I, I think I might get a whoop now because of this. Um, that being said, yeah, when I got the whoop, because I am deemed a founding member, because again, I ordered it the day it became available to the public. Right. I had to pay upfront $500 for the band, which at the time seemed obscene because I had no idea whether this thing was going to work or not. Whereas now you have to pay a monthly subscription. And I'm like, for the $30 a month you would be paying now, I've had this whoop for three years and I would have spent a thousand dollars in this amount of time if it was on a a monthly subscription. So to all those guys that are going out and getting it now, hopping on the bandwagon. Yeah. (laughs) You were in before it was cool. Like everything, like knitting circles. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so going, going back real quick, one thing I'm curious about, uh, when you transitioned away from your dad as a caddy, how did that go? Like, I'm like, did you have to fire your dad? (laughs) What was, what was that process like? It was, um, yeah, it was very difficult, you know, because he was, we always joked, we we always joked. He was my Coca, my caddy, a Coca, my daddy. He was my coach, my caddy, my manager and my dad. Mm -hmm. And so he was all encompassing and we were both just so fully immersed in, in what we were doing. So it was very difficult because, you know, I was, um, you know, I was, I was 20, 22 and, you know, to one end, I'm like, I'm 22. I've been a legal adult for four years now. I need to start venturing out on my own. And then at the same time, you know, just like any parent would, 
and just like any person, like now I look and I'm like, you didn't know a damn thing at 22. You know, it's like, yeah. and, and I also needed my dad because he was also my instructor. I was like, I, I, I need you to be, you can't wear too many hats. I need you to be my father first and foremost. And then we could talk about instructor and then we could start talking about managing and things like that. And so it was, it was tough because, you know, and, and it did put a strain on our relationship for a little bit of time. Yeah. It, it did end up becoming a mutual um, agreement because we, we did realize that this was something that I did need to do in order to really become and be my own player. So it was tough. There's no question about that. Um, that being said, like, I mean, our relationship now is even stronger than it ever was, you know, and we argue so much less because, you know, realistically, we only argue about small shit, like, or we always <laughs> would argue about stupid shit. It was just stupid shit was happening five times around kind of thing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, thinking on it, it must've taken some courage because it sounds like your dad, you know, a very involved guy, obviously in his kids. So it, it must've been a difficult moment for you to work up the courage to actually in that moment to say the words, uh, even though you, you describe it as eventually mutual, it seems like you were the one who had to kind of broach it. And that, that can't have been uh, very easy at all. Oh, well, remember how he said when I first started playing golf, I never knew what the word no meant. Right. I was in the midst of making up for that. <laughs> and again, because I am my father's daughter, I am, um, uh, some people might call it stubborn as an, as a mule. I I'd like to say that, think that I am, very, um, strong in my beliefs of conviction. And so I, you know, I, and this was something, it's, it's just like any kind of breakup, really. It's like, usually when the words come out, it's already been in the works. Sure. Yeah, and so I had had yeah. time to analyze things. And so I was like, no, okay. Yeah, this is, I, I believe this is the right thing to do. This is what we should be doing. This is better for both of us. This is better for our overall relationship. And, um, you know, in, in time he did eventually agree because it, it was probably, you know, I, I first broached the idea of it, you know, uh, months before I had even said it and it, it broke both of our hearts. And then we eventually did come to terms with it. Um, you know, at, at the end of the day, you know, we're family first and foremost, and right. if it was right. going to have a negative impact on how we, um, related and behaved with one another as family, there's nothing, there's no, there's no way of. Uh, conducting business that could ever be worth that. Yeah. And now, you know, golf is such a strange sport in the way it has these up and downs. I, I wrote a piece in November about Brendan Todd, who is yeah. beautifully written, by the way, I must say. Uh, oh, I appreciate that. Thank you. And he's he's one of the most extreme examples of somebody who has kind of been to the depths and come back up and he's done it twice. Um, and so but it seems to happen to everybody, even on minor levels. Like you could look at Rory over the last five years and go, yeah, he's still an unbelievable player, but maybe there's like, a, you know, he entered a slight dip by his own standards. Um, and so, you know, that's something that happened to you to some degree. You had four top tens in 2009 and 2010 in majors alone. Uh, and then kind of the next couple of years were a little bit of a struggle. And, you know, it's rare that I actually get to talk to a professional golfer and ask this question, but what is that like? I mean, it just seems like a sport like golf is so dependent on these tiny mechanical things. Unlike you were talking about some of the more reactive sports. Uh, it, it seems like it would be harder to fix something and harder to even identify what to fix when it goes wrong. Yeah. Well, um, I'm actually, I, I and Brendan is a, a, an incredible inspiration just in sport, uh, partly mm -hmm. because of what he's been able to endure twice, like you said, and also the fact that he is willing to open up and discuss it. Um, I think that a lot of people, regardless of what 
activity they're in, what kind of lifestyle they had, they can find parallels um, to what Brendan had had gone through. Because the way that I see it, as someone that I I'm I'm a self-proclaimed um, baby giraffe when it comes to legitimately any other sports, I <laughs> think that the the one of the magical things, two of the magical things about golf is one, you will very rarely find something in a sport that has so many parallels to life. And secondly, it is one of the most mentally taxing sports because there is that downtime between shots because you're allowed to let your brain take over if you want it to. And again, you know, in, in reactionary sports, obviously you have to hone your, your skills to become the best at the best. And at the same time, um, like I said, you're still reacting you know, and you're still strategizing on the go as things are happening. Whereas in golf, you can look at the ball and yeah, it's just sitting there. If you're in the wrong frame of mind or in a, in a poor frame of mind, it's just standing there. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And so I think that one of the great things about golf is that it really tests you on a mental level. Unlike anything else if you allow it to. Um, and so for me, you know, what it was like was I was, you know, like I said earlier, I had difficulty in truly immersing myself in the present. And so, um, that's where, you know, like, you know, as I'm checking the weather, as I'm, you know, noting, you know, the changes in, in humidity. And as I'm noting, you know, just differences in terms of like length of shadows and things like that, those are all grounding exercises for me to truly immerse myself in the present. And so, when, you know, when you, when you're, when you're playing well, just like in any sport, it's, it's, am I allowed to swear? Yeah. Oh, please. Yeah. Go ahead. It's fucking easy. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah, it's effortless yeah. swinging on a mat to getting on the driving range and pounding it further than most of these people that had been playing golf for 10 years did. Um, then, you know, eventually learning how to putt and chip and then having an unbelievable short game to, um, you know, not, uh, you know, playing well in competition in junior tournaments. Like I, you know, had a, a, was a course record for the USGA for a number of years until Billy Horschel had to come out and shoot 60 in the US Am like a, like a prick, lovely guy, (laughs) mind you, wonderful, wonderful guy. But a prick, Um, a total prick. Yes. Yes. Sport in in terms of that one aspect of it. (laughs) And, you know, I, I, I had never really faced adversity before. Like I thought for me facing adversity was like in, Oh, I forget if it was like maybe, Oh, eight or maybe it was like oh six or something i was like no it was maybe it was oh nine or whatever i was like outside the top 30 of the money list and i was like what yeah i i never had to try before you know and and i think part of that also was kind of like in with the onset of the uh, the change in grooves and all of a sudden the ball spinning less. And, um, because I had always uh, prided myself in my ability to spin the ball in every which way I was, Mm -hmm. um, you know, always, I was always, and still am a ball striker. And so to have to adjust to, you know, with my swing speed at the time and having the ball, like not land and stop or land and spin back, I'm like, all of a sudden, you know, the ball's bounding forward an extra five feet an extra six feet. And I'm like, well, now I've got a 12 footer instead of a three footer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What is going on here? And then that goes into your brain and you think, am I not as good of a ball striker as I was, you know? And it's, it's just, you sit there and you try and find not excuses. Um, it's just so easy to not see things for what they really are. And so I thought that I was losing my game and 
you know, very much like Brendan. It's just like you miss one cut and you're like, eh, whatever. You miss two cuts and you're like, ooh, that's not good. And then mm-hmm. all of a sudden mm-hmm. it just starts snowballing and you can't seem to make it stop. And then at the same time, in your mind, you're sat there and you're like, well, if I stop playing, that means I'm losing out in another tournament, which means more people are going to pass me by. Whereas if I had said, you know, I'm going to stop for two weeks, I'm going to really work on my game and then I'll come back and win two of the next five tournaments. So those two tournaments that I missed were actually a blessing in disguise. I never had that thought process. And, you know, most of the time people don't have that thought process. And now you had an interesting kind of timing. You you know, you wrote a book with Alan Shipnuck. I believe it came out in 2010. Uh, And then as it happened, the next kind of two years of your life were some of the most difficult, probably, I, I don't know if you would agree with this, but probably some of the most profound and you've written about your mental health struggles and things like that. Um, which I think is an incredibly brave thing to do. I've tried it before and, and only had half success. So to be able to put yourself out there, I think is something really, um, like I said, really courageous, but yeah, like those years seem to have been the formative years for everything that has come later. Does that still ring true for you today? The stuff that you wrote back then? There's no question. I mean, I, I joke that the book that I wrote, um, with Alan, it, it was, it was a great time. Like it was just, we'd call each other every week and I would just basically ramble off just about what I did that week. And he would put it into words mm-hmm. and, um, I sit there and I tell my friends, I'm like, you know, those books you always have in the toilet when you're having issues, taking a poop, this <laughs> is not quite that kind of book. This is more the kind of book you leave in the bathroom in the case that you actually run out of toilet paper. Um, oh. I say that joking, of yeah, course, yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, it was because it's, it's just the same thing as you look and you're like, Jesus Christ, did I actually wear coulettes or like, <laughs> did I ever think cargo shorts were a, were a legitimate thing? If I wasn't in like military tactical gear, right, what purpose right. does, why do I, why, why was I wearing cargo pants? And a purse, you know, like, you know, it's just, you you think of all these little things. And so it's just like kind of looking back, um, that being said, like, like funnily enough, I actually went back and reread the blog post that I put up, um, years ago where I, you know, had my, you know, sort of my, you know, explanation to everyone of what's been going on. It was titled like, you know, time to talk about the elephant in the room. And yeah, there's no question that it was one of the most, Uh, Looking back on it now, it was one of the most amazing and incredible, again, with every definition of the word experiences I've ever been through, because I, um, you know, looking back on it now, I can sit there and say, like, and I'm not going to lie, I thought it was pretty fucking well written. I'm not going to lie, especially for a child. I was like, wow. I read it. I read it. uh, I read it this morning. I put it on and I was uh, same thing. I'm like. I, yeah, it was, it was incredibly well written. I was like, this is really, and I, I had that thought. I'm like, wonder if she had somebody ghostwrite this. And I was like, no, absolutely not. That would be <laughs> impossible, but no, yeah, it is. It's still, and I'll link it when I put this up, but I uh, totally oh, agree with you thank on that. You. Yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah, no, it was just, you know, it was just a number of things where, and, and that's oftentimes what happens when you're dealing with your me- mental health is, you know, everything just keeps seems to snowball kind of like how I was talking about, like, you know, you start with one miscut to two to three, and then all of a sudden you just, it's very easy to look at things and say, uh, anything and everything bad that could happen to me is happening to me. Mm-hmm. Whereas now I sit there and I say, okay, there was, that was the closest I ever came to an attempt on my life. It's yeah. a fact. Yeah. 
It is not something that I try and avoid. It's just something that took place in my life. And so I always sit there and say, no matter what you've been through, those last three words are the only words that matter. You've been through. Right. And you're still here now, you know? So for me, like I still struggle with my mental health. It's not like it's something that I can ever be completely done and over with. Um, that being said, I've come across a lot of really wonderful, um, sort of, uh, you know, exercises and, um, you know, uh, forms of meditation. And like, for me, running is a form of meditation. Like I don't sit there and say, okay, I've got to run at like an eight minute pace for, you know, four and a half miles. And I got to try and book it up and try and go at like a seven, seven fifty pace. And this yeah, and I'm just yeah. like, I'm going to run because if I'm not completely immersed in what I'm doing, when I run, I will die. Somehow I will run right into the mouth of an alligator, you know? <laughs> and so for me, it's just about, really truly looking back and being like wow like and and marveling at the fact of how in the shit did you make it out of there alive because you had no sense of presence whatsoever right you were everywhere and now i'm able to sit there and be like i'm here right now and one there's no other place i can be and at the same time there's no other place i would rather be you know and truly just finding um inspiration in anything and everything. And so now when I come across something that I would have considered a challenge back in the day, I look at it as an opportunity. And then I look on it and I say, okay, all of the best lessons I've ever learned came from really difficult experiences. And that is something to be proud of. And that is something to be excited for. So I sit here and I say, fucking come at me. Let me see what, let me see what I'm made of. I know what I've been made of. There's no telling of what more I can do. And I'm very excited to see where those, um, uh, where those possibilities lie. And then also when I turned 30, I woke up and I came to the realization because, you know, it's just like we all did when we were in our twenties. We're like, man, we know everything because we're finally adults and we're in our third decade and (laughs) this and that, whatever. And I woke up on my 30th birthday and I said, I don't know a damn thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I am so excited to spend the rest of my life trying to learn. And so all of a sudden, everything that came to me has become a lesson. And um, if I can just say one thing uh, in regards to what it was I went through, like one thing that I really learned was to truly take small victories, you know, and I was always doing little things when I was, you know, like when I was playing well, like, and I just, I never knew it. Like I would always finish my warm up on the driving range with two perfect drives. And mm-hmm, then mm-hmm. before I would go out on the golf course, I would make six putts in a row. And then after I finished a round, I would always hit six putts in a row, make six putts in a row. And then I would go home and, you know, on great days, when days when I'm just like the, the, the putt, the, the, the hole looks like a freaking like manhole cover. Yeah. I'd sit there and I'd throw down 15 footers and boom, 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 make all six, be like, I'm out, mic drop. And then on difficult days, I'd be there at two feet. And even though I could look at that and be like, man, I have to go all the way up to two feet to make six in a row. I was still telling myself, you made six in a row. Like you accomplished something. And so on the, on the really, really tough days, which are, are far rarer, um, though they do still, you know, come and knock on the door and see what's going on in my life. 
I, I spend my day focusing on um, all the victories I have. And on the worst days, it's you woke up, check. <laughs> yeah, you did it. Yeah, you, you, yeah. Made, you made it through the day, right? I mean, that, that itself yeah. is a check mark. I, um, I think it's, yeah, really important what you said there. A lot, everything you said was important. But the one thing that resonates with me is I think sometimes when people talk about this stuff, whether it's the media or whatever, and I even saw some of it in the coverage of the blog post that you wrote, they want to paint something as a struggle that you went through and that ended in triumph and now it's over. And I think when talking about mental health, it's really important what you said, which is that it certainly is a triumph to get through it, but also there has to be a recognition and a realization that, as you said, uh, you know, there are those hello old friend type moments where it's like, this is never over. It's never, you know, once you have it, you have it. And, and it's about how you cope and it's about small victories and things like that, but it, it never quite goes away. Uh, and wanting it to go away, uh, is almost like the wrong approach, right? That that's kind of, I feel like what I've learned from, from my own stuff. For sure. I, I, I would sit there and, and, you know, these days I, I focus more on, uh, on what is right. Um, you know, like even talking to my friends, you know, like girls that are just getting out on tour, you know, they're talking about caddies. And I say, if I can give you one piece of advice, if you get a caddy that tells you don't go left, it's dead fire him on the spot. <laughs> yeah. It's true because yeah. if you were to say, don't go here, only thing you're thinking about is going there. Whereas if they are able to gently encourage you saying, you know what, it really opens up from the right side. You've got tons of room on the right to open up. Like that is the same exact thing that they're trying to say. It's all in how you take things. And, um, a book that I, I read it probably three times a year. It's uh, on years I'm playing well. So there was a couple of years where I definitely did not read it once. Um, it's always in my bag though, is body mind mastery by Dan Millman. And it's, it's a sports psychology book. It's just general sports. And I find it so useful in everything I do in life. It's like when you're trying to make changes, whether it's to your body, to your, 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 your mind, your soul, your mental health, it's all about gentle guidance, you know, mm -hmm. instead of like, um, and being kinder to yourself. Like it opens up talking about, you know, it sounds like there was a commentator who's talking about this human being who's doing this unbelievable, incredible feat who almost falters and then is able to, um, you know, come in and complete it with it with triumph. And, you know, it's all recorded on video and this and that, and everyone's just like losing their damn minds. And it's a child learning how to walk. Yeah. You know, yeah. because if kids, if infants had the mindset that we as adults do now, none of us would know how to walk. They'd never walk. That's so funny. That's so true. Yeah. And so they're more, they're, they're just like, oops, I fell down. They're like, how do I get back up so I can do that again? Yeah. And I think that that's something that is so remarkable when it comes to small, squishy um, flesh bags that they can <laughs> teach us so much. And they're so, so present. And um, it's about also about gentle guidance where it's like if you grab a kid and like wrench their arm saying, you know, trying to get them to go somewhere, you wrench their arm. The first reaction of any human being is to fight back, to resist it, yep. you know. Yes. And so it's like, as opposed to just gently taking their arm and saying, Hey, why don't we go over here? It's safer over here. Or this looks like it could be more fun. Then you're going to be more pliable and willing to go. So it's all about gentle guidance. And it's like, talks about like non-resistance and, um, not conformity, just more, um, like sort of like letting, letting the river wash over you as a rock, as opposed to trying to fight it. Yeah. And you can find all of these amazing parallels in life of just resilience and things like that. So that's a book that I, um, I actually read it right before I went to Australia this year and had two top tens. Um, so I'm just like, I'm, I'm going to read that book 
to the day I die. My, my copy is stained and dog-eared and tattered and torn. And mm-hmm. it is just mm-hmm. one of my most prized possessions. All right, we'll do two quick ones. You mentioned your two top tens earlier this year. Uh, it seems like something happened to you in the fall last year where you started to turn it around and you had a great, I, I'm, I'm going to get the name wrong, but the equivalent of Q School. Uh, you did a great job there and then you've had two top tens this year. And then uh, to prove that the obstacles never stop, right when you're kind of heating up, here comes the global pandemic. Um, how, how did that affect you mentally? And then, you know, are you... Will you be back in Arkansas? Are you going to play right when the tour comes back? And do you feel like you've been able to kind of maintain your form? Oh, I'm not going to lie. I, I, when the, when the pandemic hit, my first and only thought was, how are we going to get as many people to avoid contracting this virus as possible? Mm -hmm. Does that mean canceling tournaments? Fuck it. Let's cancel as many tournaments as we have to until we can get a grasp on this. Um, And, you know, I, like you said, you know, I started turning things around. I started really working hard on my game. I decided to go, um, partake in a ketogenic lifestyle. I hate the word diet. It has the word die in it. And, um, you know, I just, (laughs) for that, in that regard, I really just wanted to get the shackles of sugar off of me. I, um, you know, was always a sugar monster, especially, you know, living and it's, it's not, it's not a dig by any means. It's just a reality living here in America. We eat a lot of convenient foods. We eat a lot of packaged foods. We eat a lot of foods that are prepared and, you know, we're, we've, we've gone to such a degree these days of, um, you know, convenience. We live in this Amazon prime same day because I live here in Florida and there's a, there's a warehouse here in Kissimmee. There's same day delivery now, like we're impulse buyers. Like, you know, these are not digs. It's just, this is where society has taken us lately. And, I was just like, you know what I want to do is get the sugar shackles off of me. I, and, and the ketogenic lifestyle is about increasing the amount of fats that you consume, preferably good fats, um, you know, moderate protein and very, very lean in carbs. And I just said, you know what, what the, what's the worst that happens if I die because I OD on avocados and butter, <laughs> I've had a good run. Like I'll go when I'm meant to go. I ain't going right. to, you know, That's I, right. it's, what are you going to do? You can't stop it. It's going to happen when it happens. And so, um, I actually underwent this, this period where I, I always, I call it hibernating. I hibernate a few times a year where, um, and it's not just that I like log off social media and it's not just that I like, you know, um, try and catch up on sleep. I will sleep for 17 hours a day and I will only leave my bed to use the restroom. And so I went into one of my hibernation modes. So four days, slept 17 hours a day, was watching like YouTube clips and then was on social media a bit and then was just consuming water and macadamia nuts and pecans. And so that, um, and I needed it physically, I needed it emotionally and I needed it mentally more than anything else. And so I basically just turned my, turned reset everything. And so when I got out of bed after that fourth day, my taste buds had changed. I no longer was craving sugar. I was no longer craving soda. I was no longer craving anything. The only thing I was consuming at that time, aside from water, were um, good healthy fats in the form of macadamia and pecan nuts. And all of a sudden, I was ravenous um, for you know a good fatty cut of steak. I was ravenous yeah, for yeah. avocados, for um, you know like grass fed butter, all of these amazing things. Um, and now, like my number one thing is pili nuts, which is a, a nut. Uh, from um, the Philippines that is like the most like complex, complete 
nut that has ever come to existence and it's creamy and it's incredible and it's it's just amazing and so now if i were to get like an underripe strawberry where it's green at the top with a, with like white coming down halfway through it's too sweet for me Interesting. so wow yeah and and so for me i've been very fortunate in that my taste buds have changed and i no longer crave sugar um which was the ultimate goal and then like honestly a happy happy positive or happy accident um Aside from that was, yeah, I guess I've lost a shit ton of weight. I always joke that I have body image dysmorphia just in the reverse. Um, I always (laughs) say that I have shallow hell syndrome because I would always look in the mirror and I would say, you have a good heart. That's ultimately all that matters. You give a shit about people. You care about people. Mm -hmm. You ask how they're doing and you fucking mean it when you ask them. I'm not superficial and I'm not materialistic. I had been materialistic in the past and that was just stupid. Um, I, I'm not like that. I, I've always had a good heart. And so now I look in the mirror and I'm just say, you've got a good heart. Yeah. But I can see the teardrop in your quad. That's actually kind of cool. You know, you can, and, sorry, and, say and so that last part again, Christina. I, I say, I'll, I'll, I'll look in the mirror and I'll say, you still have a good heart. Yeah. That being said, I can see the teardrop in your quad. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah and yeah. that's kind of cool. <laughs> you know, I'm like, that's neat. You know? Definitely. And, and so now yeah. being able to see how, how actually strong I've becoming, that has been something I'm, I'm very, very much becoming addicted to because you're, you're, you're one testing your body and, and its limits and in, in what it can physically do. And at the same time, you're releasing endorphins and dopamine and serotonin and things like that, that are just, you know, it's just, it's really interesting to see how much of a marvel the human body is. And so I sit here and I'm like, okay, I've lost like 60 pounds. I don't give a shit it's more of a hassle right now because ain't shit open and I can't buy dick, you know? So I'm just like, I'm like, I, right now I'm wearing pants from 2006 because I'm like, screw it. Like I'm, I'm not going to risk catching COVID just because no, I want to fit yeah. into a pair of pants. I don't care. I'm like, none of this external stuff really matters to me. All that matters is, is what comes out from your heart and what comes out from your soul. And those are the things that I can latch onto and see. That's awesome. That would be a perfect place to end. But to show that I have no sense of uh, no sense of the moment, I'll ask you one last question. Um, Christina, last weekend I was watching PGA Tour Live. I had no idea you were going to be on it. And I heard this person who had real personality and was funny and uh, and really seemed to know the game. And I was really digging it. And I'm like, who is this? And then they're like, oh, Christina Kim. And they showed you. And I was like, ah, that makes perfect sense. Um, So tell me tell me how that came about. And yeah, what was it like? I mean, did you enjoy being on TV? And is it something that, you know, off in the distant future or maybe not the distant future you can see yourself doing? Well, one, um, maybe one day, I, 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 I think that I, I, and I'm not going to lie. I am really proud of myself because I did not swear once while I was on the air because <laughs> I know I, the PJ tour live, I understand is not necessarily under the same strict FCC guidelines. That being said, it was a, it was a, something that I challenged myself to do and I succeeded. I did mention fart joke and taking my pants off. Oh, see, I, no I, I felt like I remembered you saying like, like it seemed like you were going to say bullshit. And then you said like, Bull crap or so. I, I don't know if that's exactly yeah. what it was, but there was a moment. Where I that's was like, exactly what it was. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. And I was like, oh, she came close. Whoever that, that was before I knew it was you. I'm like, wow, she really, she really almost swore on PGA tour live there. No, that's good. <laughs> that, that's, that's remarkable restraint. Well done. Uh, well, I mean, I've been training myself cause I did do commentary for the Solheim cup in 2015 and mm-hmm. they were like, we don't have a seven second, uh, delay on your mic. This is on you. And so I was like, Ooh, 
you are your own FCC. Yeah. Yes. And so it is something that I am, I do concern myself with because, you know, it's just, there's not, even though it, it does come out naturally in my own vernacular, that doesn't mean that that has to be something that needs to be displayed all the time. Um, and I, you know, I had an absolute ball. I was terrified when I came on because I was like, these are all guys that I've always, you know, like not necessarily looked up to because I think almost every single one of them was like 10 years younger than me more. It was just like, these are guys that do continue to inspire me. And these Mm -hmm. are guys that I've wanted to, you know, um, play a round of golf with and get to know and things like that, you know, and I, I, I have been to a dinner with Rory before with Lee Westwood and we used to all have the same management group years ago. And it's just like, it's so cool. And I'm just, I'm a huge fan of the game in general. And it's so fun watching the guys play because like, I remember on, on the Friday coverage, Bryson was teeing off and I just laughed because it was just <laughs> yeah. comical what he was able to do to the golf ball, even though he was still unable to quote, unleash the Kraken end quote. Right. And so I had an absolute ball and I'm not going to lie. I just, I just feel like I just spectated the whole time. And I was just like, I was just, I was just riffing. I was just going off, you know, and I was like, I don't want a script. I don't need a script. I do better when I just do stream of consciousness stuff. Mm-hmm. And I just want to, um, you know, have fun in everything that I do and, and, and live my life in truth. And so I, um, had a great time. I may or may not be on again in the near future. Ooh, okay. um, and that is definitely something that I do want to look forward to. Um, you know, I, it, and it may sound comical cause I'm coming into my 18th year on tour on the LPGA and I'm in my 19th year as a professional in general. I feel like I've just barely passed my halfway point in my career because my passion for the game has only gotten stronger. Yeah. I have, no desire to stop playing. I'm learning constantly. And to go back to the other question that you asked, which I failed to answer because I spent 25 minutes talking about food. Um, (laughs) You know, I, in this COVID, in this lockdown period, I've been working harder than I ever have. And I've been working on my game. I've been working on my swing. I've been working out. And I feel like I've got such a better grasp of who I am as a golfer, as well as a person, as well as a daughter, as well as a friend that I'm, I'm so excited to go. And people are, you know, some people have asked, like, they're like, oh man, you were on an upward trend. I'm like, doesn't mean it has to stop. I'm like, I feel like I was, I was allowed the opportunity um, because you have players on, these are the two far extremes. You have everything in between. You have players that will say, I'm not going to touch a club until I know I'm two week, two months out from playing in a tournament. Right. right and right. then you've got a player like me that says, this is amazing. I have no idea how long this is going to take. Um, that being said, I'm lucky enough where I get to work on all of these swing changes that I've been undergoing and I will be fucking ready when it's time to go. And so I've looked at, although it's tragic because of the numbers, especially with all the numbers on the rise all over the country and things like that. And it's not even necessarily due to people saying that testing has gone up because, uh, a week ago on Saturday, we had at that time our um, highest recorded number of cases that came back positive with a 3% decrease in tests performed. Mm. And so, you know, it's just a matter of, you know, it's just, it's a, it's a byproduct of relaxing restrictions and people, you know, sitting there and saying, you know, oh, we can go out and we can go back to normal. And it's like, no, the, the reality is that this is our new normal until there's a vaccine, wear your damn mask 
make it cute, draw a penis on it. If you want, I don't care. Like just, just do something, you know, that's going to be the quote that we pull for this episode. <laughs> Wear a mask, Whatever make it cute, draw a penis on it. If you want, that, that's yeah. the only thing that's going to come out of this. <laughs> okay. um, I, I sit there and I'm just like, cause, cause the thing is like my folks, they live with me here in Florida. When I moved down to Florida, I said, you guys worked your entire lives for me to be out here. It's my time to return the favor. Mm-hmm. So everything that I do, I'm doing for them and everything, every encounter that I'm making, every person that I encounter, like I have been, I'm a hugger. I like to touch people and I like to touch things. Mm -hmm. That being said, I have not touched, I have not hugged a human since the beginning of March. Wow. And I'm very aware of that. I have, um, every time that I go outside, as soon as I come home, I disrobe immediately. I hop in the shower. I wash my hands before I even get in the shower. I disinfect all the time. I have six bottles of sanitizer in my purse, all different scents, depending on the mood that I'm in. And if I need some aromatherapy, I have, um, (laughs) wipes. I have, I have everything that I need as well as masks, masks, masks. And I, you know, uh, for me, my personal bubble, if I'm able to have my own personal bubble, I choose to make mine 10 feet because they recommend six feet. You know what? I'm going to go above and beyond because again, this has something, this is beyond just me. I went, I've, I've been feeling amazing. That being said, I went and did, um, a COVID and antibody testing on Sunday of last week, just because we keep hearing of all of these asymptomatic cases that are coming out. And I'm like, what if I'm asymptomatic? Then, you know, what's a, like, let's say if I have to quarantine for two weeks, what are, what are two weeks in my life in comparison to the number of weeks in a lifetime that may be lost if I end up giving someone else the virus if I have contracted it? it means nothing, yeah. nothing. Yeah, that's right. So I sit here and I say, this is obviously for myself and my health, and this is for everyone that I encounter because this is, this is how we can all come together. You know, and then, you know, then you got the people that are sitting there saying because of all these Black Lives Matter protests, that's where, um, you know, tests are on the rise and this and that. And it's like, don't try and make something anything other than what it is. The Black Lives Matter movement is something that has been important. It has been going on for years. It's just people have finally been able to stop, breathe and pay attention. And I think it's just amazing how people are finally at least being willing to listen. And this is not about... Um, because I'm a huge, I'm a huge supporter. I'm an advocate. I'm an ally in the black lives matter movement in the LGBTQAI plus movement in women's rights. And it's about, it has nothing to do about bringing anybody else down. It's just about taking the black community and bringing them up and providing them with opportunities. They're just saying, they just want to matter. They're not saying they want to be king of the castle. They just want to be right. able to be brought up to, to surface level. And I think anybody who does not believe in that is, is living a life of bullshit. You know, this is nothing to do this unless you're a black person. This has nothing to do with you in the sense that this isn't going to have a negative impact on you. Helping people never hurts. So being able to bring our black community and bring them up is great for everybody. I'm sorry. This is something I no, just this, start ranting on. I'm no, sorry. no, that's good. It's a great rant. Um, yeah, I, I think I completely agree with everything you're saying. Um, and yeah, it's, I just, you know, I appreciate you saying that. I think it's it, it'd be much easier and we see a lot of athletes do it especially you know non-black athletes uh it's easier to stay quiet and it's it's cool not just that you're saying it but that you're so adamant about it and so educated about it well it's just simple like i you know i'm i i always joke it's that you know because for you know whatever whatever thing i say it's not just that i'm yellow it's not just that i have a vagina i have a yellow vagina like i am a minority (laughs) within a minority like you know what i mean i'm like this is something that you know and and 
you know, I, I love being here in Florida. That being said, I still encounter racism. I still encounter being marginalized. I'm a female in a male dominated sport. I'm marginalized in that sense. Like it, I, these are just facts. This is nothing to do with dragging anybody else down. This is about trying to get every single type of human being, regardless of color, regardless of background, regardless of orientation, regardless of identity, to get to the very, very top heights of humanity together. Nothing about bringing anybody else down. Let's all see how fucking high up in this world we can go. All right, Christina Kim, you are a delight. Thank you very, very much. Of course, Shane. Thank you. Thank you so much for letting me be your first like athlete that has kind of <laughs> dipped their toes into journalism. I really appreciate it. Segment break. Uh, Christina Kim, thank you so much. That was really fun. Thank you all for listening. And I really don't have much else to say. I hope you have a happy 4th of July. If you're listening to this after, I hope your 4th of July was happy. Uh, if you want to uh, subscribe to this year podcast, you can do so on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, all the usual places. Uh, if you liked it, maybe give it a five-star review if you feel that is an accurate depiction of what you listen to. And other than that, uh, yeah, Apocalypse Sports Network. If you're interested, patreon.com slash apocalypse sports. Thank you very much. Stay safe. Goodbye.